Welcome to Reptile Fight Club. Uh, it's me, your host, Justin Julander. And with me, as always, is Chuck Your Poland. faithful friend, Chuck Poland. <laughs> Did I rip off the NPR guys? <laughs> Did you? I don't know. I don't know. Sounded like... That sounded really familiar, but anyway. Well, how you been, man? Good, dude. Uh, just, you know, sweating it out here in California right now. We uh, finally got yeah. our air conditioning on. It's hot, so... Um, <laughs> tis the season, though, so... How about you? Yeah. Yeah, it's been pretty uh pretty hot here as well, but we just had kind of a break in the weather, had some rain and stuff, so that's been nice. It's overcast today. Uh maybe it will rain a little more. So yeah, not not too bad right now. Nice. But we we actually that were just down in California, so that was uh kind of nice. <laughs> well that that was a good trip. I'm sorry I couldn't make yeah. it up, man. I had I yeah. had uh, if I it, I I had made a prior commitment to a buddy, so um, no worries. How was the shooting? It was fun. It was good. Yeah. yeah, we just, uh, it was, you know, where, where we shoot at is out in Del Zura, like, right. Uh, maybe like, but well, not quite to Del Zura, but it's out off a uh, Campo, like out East. So it mm-hmm. was hot, yeah. very hot. Like we probably quit shooting around 1030 cause it was just too, too hot to take. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, it's pretty apparent by the crowds at the beach that yeah. everybody was getting away from the heat, man. It was nice 75 degrees at the beach. We, yeah. uh, although, so we went on uh, Thursday and it was like empty. There were like five cars in the lot we were in at, by the beach. And then um, Saturday we went around 11 o'clock and there was like a mile and a half line just yeah. to get in to get in yeah. and so we had to drive down that was the beach we'd planned to go to so we drove down south and and we got into one right as they put up the full sign behind us so we you know squeak, squeaked in there and then uh yeah where'd you a, go oh, you go huntington beach this or? is huntington yeah huntington? yeah so, i like i like uh, huntington beach my yeah. my we and my cousin was that when we when i used to come up for narbc oh, uh, yeah. i'd stay with him up in huntington beach and uh, yeah he wasn't far off the beach we'd always watch the the volleyball nationals they have there and it's happened oh, yeah. right around the same time a and ton of um, course or courts yeah. there yep and it's <laughs> just uh, it's a fun, fun, fun time right around then. That 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 was a always a good time for NARBC up there. Is just a lot of stuff going on in in uh, Huntington Beach. So I was yeah. I always enjoyed that. Yeah, it was always fun vending so, those shows. I miss the old gang uh, that we used to to do oh, the yeah. NARBC show with. That was fun, fun times. No, no, not no. still not sure what happened to some of them. I, I miss that uh, Jeremy yeah. Krisky dude. He was. He was good. He was good peeps, man. I know he yeah, off the face sure. of the, off the face of the earth, though, huh? Yep, <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Yeah, but, well, uh, other you I'm, know, Chris Behoff's still around, and yeah, he's yeah, uh, good dude. A uh, bunch of a few others. Uh, yeah, it's a fun crowd out there. Yeah, we we uh, sure. who else was who else was out there? There was um, we had that picture. Uh, of of us at like going out to dinner or something after yeah, the show. Yeah, the, there was the big. Steve the, comes. It's always yeah. you know, cool to have Steve out there and Ben and yeah. I bet Behoff would remember all those guys' names. Yeah, but, uh, the, I'm, big, I'm there's that there's well. that really big dude. I can't remember his name. He was around for a while and then mm-hmm. um, I think he moved. I think he may have moved to Florida, but mm. uh, he's still. I know he's still around. I just don't. I don't connect with him much. But uh, yeah, yeah, you know that. I mean good times out there good time. yeah we went up to the la zoo checked out the the lair and you know it's pretty pretty cool zoo they've got yeah. a nice collection uh 
got some good stuff there. So that was fun to go check out the zoo with the kids. They, they were a little worn out, you know, teenagers get, get a little fussy when it, they get warm and <laughs> worn what? out. What? <laughs> they yeah. do? It's, it's, it's a you know, strange phenomenon. Yeah. It occurs, right. Yeah. It but we had a good time. So. That's cool. We wanted to get in the last trip before school started. So how's Treg? Yeah, he's good, doing good. Cousins, good. Uh, yeah, Trey and Jenny are great. That's we call them the Hotel Jewlander out there. Yeah, for sure, man. <laughs> yeah, they, they're awesome. They have hosted many. A, they have hosted many a friend and Jewlander yep. as well. <laughs> yeah, so. I, you guys have all slept on their couch, and <laughs> yeah, good times. Yeah, they. Yep. Um, my brother in law is living there too, so we got to hang out with him. He oh, he nice. got uh, stationed yeah, yeah, yeah. here in L.A. and it, with the Air Force, and so. Yeah, Anson's a great guy. We had a lot of fun with him. He went to the beach with us on Saturday and hung out with him. He's he's great, great fun. So nice. Um, yeah, it's it's nice though. They're going to be a little closer. They were in they were in Texas and Alaska before that, so it was hard to see him too often uh, when they were that far off. But now in California, it's only a you know half a day's drive or so. Yeah. So. You can see him a little more fre- frequently, hopefully. My sister's still in Texas, kind of waiting for things to settle down with the pandemic and all that kind of garbage, and then move out to LA and um, join her husband. Wow, that's that's awesome. So, so in a in a in a time where all of the Californians are are, are fleeing to Texas, the the Jewlanders are are fleeing to, <laughs> but but back into uh, California. I like that. Yeah. I like that. That's yeah. good. That's yeah, good. this should be fun. So now I'll have another excuse to come down to Southern California. Yeah, um, perfect. the herb. So cool, man. Anything going on with your reptiles? Uh, man, just uh, you know, I've got uh, the the Felsuma grandis babies. I've got four of them now, so they're they're uh, they're kind of coming along. I, I probably need to get an ad up for two of them here pretty shortly, and then I've got three more eggs still in the incubator. So. Um, probably in the coming couple of weeks, maybe two, maybe three weeks. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't do very good in, on writing down when those things, uh, were found. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm kind of just guesstimating it, but whatever. Um, yeah. everything here is getting fed and getting ready. Diamonds are looking really nice. Uh, Tracy, I are looking really nice. I, um, I've been trying to get, uh, the uh pro heat panels from mm. um uh pro products but they've just had you know covid's got them uh struggling for materials so they're not able to get the aluminum framing for the for the sides on their panels and i've just been mm-hmm. waiting and waiting and so i i ended up just buying two helix panels um mm-hmm. which you know i i've i've used helix panels before and you know they're um they're uh you got to off gas them for the material and stuff. Whereas the Mm. pro products panels, you just plug them in and go. So, but, uh, yeah, I just finished off gassing those things and, uh, Mm. I just can't afford to wait any longer to get my panels in there. Um, I kind of run those animals pretty cool, like 80 degrees right up until, you know, when I start cutting off food, I'll, I'll, um, you know, I'll keep running them roughly around 80, but once, once we get past, you know, um, March timeframe, I, I usually kick that heat on for them and give them that 85 degree basking spot. And, uh, so I just needed to make sure I had that stuff like all set and ready to go. So a little early, but, uh, nonetheless, I, I was just done waiting and, and, uh, 
you know, I've had, I've had my ther- uh, thermostat just needing, needing panels to plug into it. So, um, that's, that's pretty much ready to go. So yeah, we'll see. Hopefully, man, I'm, I'm hoping for a good, a good year this coming year. Uh, yeah, it would be, it would be nice to hit that out the box again. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That'd be good to get some more, uh, Tracy out there. Yeah. I'd ha- I'll have to get some out of the house finally too. So yeah, that'll be, yeah. um, uh, it'll be a nice problem to have, I'm sure. Oh yeah, and, for sure, for yeah, sure. So pretty popular right now. One one more clutch, it'd really do it. Yeah. How about you? Yep. Yeah, the things are good. I got got that last uh, clutch of Western Simpsons, and uh, they've all shed out. They're looking nice, and got a uh, man. I had to build a couple uh, hatchling racks so I could. <laughs> you know, fit everybody individually. I've got too many holdbacks. I need to move some stuff out of here and get some stuff, uh, out of the way. Got yeah. still got a few pygmies from last year that aren't doing so great as far as feeding. And so I need to keep getting them going, but this year's babies are just rocking. So is that, is that tough nice. when you have like these babies that are doing so hot for you feeding wise, but then the ones that aren't trying yeah. to like, make sure you cater to the ones that aren't doing so good when the ones that are doing so good are just not, you know, are just so yeah. easy. Right. And it's a weird so phenomenon. I, yeah. I I think I heard Casey Lazic talk about it. He said that like the first year he produced pygmies, like all the babies ate just fine. And you know, all this, mm. everybody was telling them, Oh, they're a nightmare, they're a headache and blah. And then they were just fine. It was easy. And he's like, Oh, Oh, what's everybody talking about? This is easy stuff. And then he tried, you know, bred them again the next year. And he said the next year they were just, none of them would eat for the, hmm. to save their lives. And he said, he doesn't know what, what the difference was or what happened yeah. or what changed. But yeah, he's like, then I understood what everybody's talking about. So yeah, you have your good years and your bad years. And I, I haven't figured out what causes that or else, you know, it'd be an easy fix. Oh, know? dude. All these guys are doing great for the most part. I mean, most of them have taken on their first try and um, even the, the Western stems and, you know, all the, the children's and spotted's and <laughs> Stimson's, all the Eastern stems as well. So, you know, they're doing really good, but I don't know what the secret is, but I'm taking it. I'm happy yeah, with it. Don't, so, yeah. don't, don't look the should, gift horse in the mouth. Yeah. I should have the 2021s ready to go soon too. Nice. So nice. that's some cool things hatch out. So some fun uh, stuff for, future projects um uh so yeah stay tuned i'm not sure when i want to release that information of what i hatched out because it's really kind of a cool thing so we'll see just some weird morph thing going on so gotta figure out what's what's happening with it but we'll i'll see something that you saw something that you saw uh, across the clutch or um, well, it's, it looks like it maybe I'm sorry, recessive. maybe I should just, no, yeah. it looks like maybe a recessive trait, but only two out of the five animals that hatched from that. It was a smaller clutch. The female is a little smaller, but so she had five eggs and two out of the five were this, uh, had this, um, aberration. Yeah. aberration. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it doesn't look like it's something with chance and, and we selected, I mean, it's, uh, selected the, the father based on his phenotype um, and then bred him and then bred him back to his offspring, two females. Um, one of the clutches went bad. Um, the eggs weren't that solid to begin with. And then the second clutch went the distance and two out of the five. So I'm curious to see if maybe that female got the gene and I don't know if the other, uh, we'll see if the other one has it as well, or if it's, you know, if it's indeed recessive or if it's, you know, well, I don't know. I got to work all that stuff out before I get too excited. Exciting. But it's uh, kind exciting. of a neat thing. And both of the mutations yeah. ate on their first 
go around, like the first offering, they took a pinky mouse. So, man, they, they're looking solid already. So nice. not a bad problem to have them, I guess. So, yeah. Well, it yeah. definitely puts a smile on your face. Yeah. <laughs> it's exciting to have something different hatch out. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I take a wild type uh, of this species any day, but you know, it's, it's kind of interesting or fun. And maybe but if that you could prove some... out a morph, would yeah, that be exactly. better? <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say better. I mean, interesting and kind of yes. fun, but well, yeah, that kind of leads us into our topic. Right? Something so, new, something new. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, so, hit them off with the topic. Yeah. So today we're going to discuss monoculture. So, um, there, there is kind of a trend or, a. uh, I don't know, you know, when you're at a reptile show and you ask people, oh, do you keep any, any reptiles? What they always say, like ball python, boa, mm-hmm. leopard gecko, corn snake, you know, it's yep. all kind of one representative of the groups. And so, um, you know, we're, we're going to kind of discuss and debate or fight about <laughs> whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, or, you know, how that might, uh, benefit the hobby to have that monoculture or how it's, you know, uh, ruining the hobby. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's no, um, left or right side, you know, we can, we can discuss that. So, and we will, that works and we will, (laughs) and we will. (laughs) All right. Yeah. I'm, I, I drove for, uh, about 12 hours yesterday. We got on the way home, we got caught in this crazy hailstorm. It was like, just this perfect, like quarter mile stretch across the road. The clouds just went across and just dumped hail and we just happened to be passing by right at that time so they kind of closed down the freeway and made us sit there a hailstorm on the first hail the storm, first yeah. of august yeah yeah it was okay. ridiculous I'm, yeah, and i mean it was crazy. it was pelting the car it was loud i was talking to rob stone at the time he's like what is that noise <laughs> so yeah i'm like yeah we're stopped on the freeway to be ha- hailed on i guess and, and then <laughs> all, all hail ice <laughs> all hail broke loose <laughs> and then we drove a little further and like the whole freeway was covered with water and we had to drive through this section and then after that it was just fine i mean it rained a little bit in some spots but for the most part it was you know, smooth sailing from there, but it delayed us by an hour. So Wacky. we got home about maybe nine, nine thirty. So, so I'm, you're I'm short on, worn you're, out. yeah, you're short on good <laughs> yeah. sleep and not thinking straight. So I'm probably babbling on, but so maybe I can, hopefully I can, yeah, maybe I could best you in your disadvantaged <laughs> state. There we go. <laughs> Take advantage, you know, stick a knife and, you know, pour salt on the wound, that kind yeah. of thing. So, all right. So yeah. let's, uh, let's Whatever. flip the coin, man. You ready to All right. give it a call? All right, here we go. Give it a call. Let's see. What you got? Tails. It's heads. Yeah, <laughs> Man. you suck. I, right. I swear well, I'm you, not I to... swear I'm not cheating here. I you know that, just calling it how it lands. I so. was gonna say I yeah, you know, I, I full on say if you weren't such an honest guy, I would have sworn <laughs> up and down by now that you rigged the toss. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, so I I've thought a little bit about this since we were going and I, you know, I probably would trend to say, you know, I don't like monoculture, but I'm going to defend it this time. I'm going to, you gonna are going to defend monoculture. Yeah, I'm going to go on the right. side of monoculture. So I don't know that's if that's good. a good move or not, but we'll, we'll go, for, we'll go with it. <laughs> so, yeah. um, do you want to defer or head out? I, I, I think I anticipate your answer. So yeah. I always defer. Maybe I'll, I'll was, go ahead I mean, and start us out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, you know, I was thinking about that cause you know, it, it, you know, you go to one of these reptile shows and, and you almost can't 
know when one table ends and another begins, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's like all ball pythons, boas, corn snakes and stuff like that. So I, you know, it's kind of bothered me to some extent, but at the same time, like I see, you know, it's kind of a commonality, you know, when you talk to people and they say, oh, I've kept that species, you're like, oh, me too. And, you know, who hasn't kept a ball python or a boa or, you know, the, all these different um, beginner or starter or most accessible reptiles, right? So they're mm -hmm. they're very easily attainable. They do very well in captivity. They're commonly bred in captivity. So the ones that you can get are generally captive bred, you know, and free of parasites and that kind of thing. And so, you know, why not? have that be a good starter and have that be a good thing and have people start out with those things. Um, so I would say, you know, that's, that's probably a good thing. And, and then there's a lot of information out there on those things. So you have, um, several books on ball pythons, boa constrictors, corn snakes, leopard geckos, and a lot of websites and different people who breed and keep them. And so lots of people who can give advice, um, usually most beginners are starting with them. So they're going to get, you know, they're going to have, have a lot of beginner questions. And so those are usually easily answered by quite a big group of people. So I think by that token, maybe monoculture isn't the, you know, isn't as bad as I thought it was. Maybe it's a good thing for the hobby. So okay. that's kind of what I'd lead with. Yeah. I mean, I think there's probably a couple of ways to, to start off, but I think, um, you know, the, 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 to me, the most obvious way would be, you know, if, if we're starting to keep in a monoculture and, and, um, you know, our, our areas are filled with a lot of the same reptiles, um, it, it's, it's taking away from the, the captive biodiversity, if you want to say, where, um, we're, we're not necessarily taking, the best advantage of our abilities as keepers uh, and leveraging probably what we would like to talk about in creating captive biodiversity of species if we're participating in a monoculture. I think there's a lot of good reasons why monocultures make sense uh, in, in captivity and, and in human care. But I think as a, as a philosophical approach, um, you know, monocultures do not really serve us very well. If we're truly trying to, um, work towards a, a captive biodiversity, uh, that is kind of representative of our, our wild biodiversity. That's probably how I would lead. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was, you know, I, I think I talked about this on, uh, Bill's podcast, uh, lizard brain radio. Um, I was on there the other day and we were talking about the Mark O'Shea book, the big mm -hmm. book of snakes. And you, I, I looked in there and there were so many species I'd never even heard of or, or knew existed in some yeah. ways, you know, and I'm, yep. you know, I'm, I'm kind of recognized as the snake guy and, you know, and around here and, and, you know, you, people expect me to know a lot about snakes and I, you know, probably know more than the, the average person on the street, uh, as we all do, but, uh, there were so many that I'd never heard of or never known about and really kind of cool species they looked really neat and i thought well why don't more people keep those and i look and it's like oh they're snake specialists or they're lizard specialists or they mm -hmm. these ones eat lizard eggs or these ones only eat blind snakes you know it's like how do you do that how do you 
keep that? How do you represent those in, in captivity? And, and, you know, if, if people said, Oh, these are cool, let's start importing them. That's going to lead to a lot of snakes meeting an untimely end because they're probably not going to do well. Um, they're probably best, you know, kept by a very limited number of keepers. So I would think for the most part, for the, the general populace, uh, to, of those keeping reptiles, they, they're probably well served by the, you know, the big five or whatever you want to call them. Um, those commonly available species like ball pythons, boa constrictors and things like that. And, um, another, I guess, aspect to that is as, as they're more commonly bred in captivity, they almost become domesticated. And so they're very more, you know, they're, they're easier to feed on the, uh, available, rodents and you know laboratory rodents that we have available to feed our animals um they uh will take to those very easily and so they're not gonna uh give give too many problems for the most part and so um, they also lose that tendency to be aggressive or you know those kind of things that come with um, domestication and so I think there's there's a lot of nice aspects of these things that are kept in, in, in captivity and bred out to several generations that, you know, we can benefit from and, and especially with new keepers. And that's kind of what I'm talking about, because most keepers in the United States are, are not specialist keepers. They're not good keepers. You know, they're they're beginners. And so they need a species that they can begin with. And, and so I think the majority of the things that are produced in the U.S. are, are one of those commonly kept species. And now we have some, you know, newer ones like crested geckos or, you know, some of the, uh, some of that group that are coming up in popularity and are, are bred. I, I remember, you know, several years ago, um, maybe there was one breeder of crested geckos at the show. And then all of a sudden now it's all, you know, the local show to me in, in Salt Lake is almost, uh, almost com- like <laughs> half dominated by crested geckos and their relatives. And so it's, uh, you know, from, from one aspect, you know, your side, it's like, well, I'd like to see diversity, but then again, I mean, for the average keeper that's coming to buy an animal at the reptile show, a crested gecko is probably one of the better pets that they could select just because they're so easy to maintain. There's all sorts of, a. a infrastructure around them like the crested gecko diets and you know different cages and things like that that are uh and and so um i think in in that regard uh that that's that's a definitely a good thing for for the hobby in general then they can enjoy the animal for a longer time they can um you know people other people might be interested in purchase them if they lose interest or want to move it along if you have some obscure or hard to keep or rare or um difficult to feed animal that's going to be a lot harder to to move on to somebody who is really interested in it yeah yeah i i mean i definitely hear that i I think that um you know it's one of those things where you have to uh be willing to, and, and that there's plenty of people out there that it, if we were to start to move into more specialized, uh, animals, uh, that we keep in captivity, I think the market would follow, um, a lot of these, um, you know, uh, goods and service producers in, in the hobby, um, if they have a new market to emerge from, they'll, they'll absolutely start trying to fill that market. Um, mm-hmm. and if we can find, you know, uh, avenues for specialty reptiles, uh, that 
we can make, uh, you know, prolific food sources for and, and do that. You know, I, I think we, I, I, I don't think that's an insurmountable problem. I think it's definitely a detractor um, from the, you know, straightforward and easy already set up kind of way we do things. And, you know, my, my, my kind of thought background in this comes right out of ecology and biodiversity in yeah. um, our ecosystems and how how sure. how you set up you know how how you set up something in nature or, or to mimic things in nature and and why do you do that and and you know one of one of the big drawbacks with um, monoculture is when you have an issue around it. It, it tends to, you know, uh, move that issue tends to move through your monoculture very, very quickly and tends to do extremely large amounts of damage. I think one of the good examples of that is like nidovirus. Uh, mm -hmm. Nidovirus has gone through a lot of people's collections that it's gotten into and done a lot of damage because most of the uh, snakes that are affected by nido are, you know, uh, all relatively related to each other and they seem to all be kept uh within the monoculture that we like to keep so you know monocultures are fine until you have a problem and so that biodiversity that you put into your private collection may also work as a stopgap uh towards you know some of the damage that that a disease or or uh, a bacteria or a fungus or whatever can if it gets loose in your collection um that that it can do that and you know that's a that's something that comes right out of agricultural farming where you know we see uh potato blight or um you know some some of the different viruses mosaic viruses things like that 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 uh, affect plants and you know there's little doubt that our modern industrial farming techniques are highly prolific and they're highly successful but we have to use ever further technology like pesticides that do untold damage to our environment in order to maintain that that monoculture right so mm. you know there there's there's by there's there's repercussions for um maintaining a monoculture and sometimes you have to take it down routes that are difficult now i'm definitely not saying that keeping ball pythons in mass uh is the same thing as uh spraying your uh the things you eat with glycophosphates uh <laughs> but there the, certainly you know the the point i'm making about problems coming out of monocultures it, whether you're talking about plants and industrial uh, farming techniques, or whether you're talking about uh, reptiles in a reptile collection, still suffer from the same kind of downside uh, when something goes awry. Okay, I'm, I'm going to run with that a little just because I'm a virologist and I like talking about viruses. But I, I think a lot cool. of these kind of things are, are could could be the other way as well. Like, as you branch out and bring in new things, you know, there's, there's, there's various, uh, nidoviruses out there and they've been characterized based on what animal they've been isolated from, but we don't know their origin necessarily. We just know kind of the end product of what animal they're infecting. So it's possible that, you know, we had like a, a green tree nidovirus get into carpet pythons and then that causes severe disease or a, a, 
ball python nidovirus get into green tree pythons and cause severe disease. So it's really hard to say, you know, to look back and say, oh, this is how it happened or you mm-hmm. know, track track that down. Or, um, But I, I believe that, you know, a lot of species kind of co-evolve with these uh, pathogens and and a lot of times they're usually fairly inert in the species that they co-evolve in because the virus doesn't want to cause severe disease and kill the host they want to just make more of themselves that's transmitted to more of the animals and and they can kind of continue their existence that way um, whereas if it gets into like an unrelated host for example like west nile virus right we've got west nile that replicates in these little um, passerine birds like sparrows and and it, and it replicates to ridiculously high titers in those animals um, and it doesn't cause any overt disease the animal's you know, clear the virus eventually, but in the meantime, they're making like 10 to the ninth, 10 to the 10th, uh, per mil. That's a lot of virus, a a virus, right? So tremendous amount of virus. And then a mosquito will feed on those and transmit it to other birds and, and other birds aren't quite so resilient or, or humans or horses, you know, um, but other birds like uh, crows, they're going to die right? If they get infected with West Nile. Humans and horses can get very sick and can potentially die from West Nile, but they're dead end hosts. They don't replicate the virus to high titers. So they're not, you know, the natural host, Mm -hmm. most likely. The natural host would be those little sparrows and other passerine birds that um, can replicate the virus to high titers, but not die from that infection. So I guess what I'm saying is if you have a monoculture, and you have, you know, they, one of those animals has a ball python, you know, say you're breeding ball pythons and one of those has a ball python nidovirus, there's probably not going to be much of an effect if it spreads to other ball pythons and, and kind of spreads within your monoculture. Now, you might have a, a strain emerge, but that requires, you know, mutations and, and you know, some kind of selective advantage that gives them the, the you know, that, that additional um, uh lethality or, you know, disease causing, uh, potential, whatever you want to call it. So, um, that's, that's, um, less likely, you know, you're going to have them just kind of persist in the, in the colony. Um, it's when you move that, move that into a different type of host that's somewhat related, say like a green tree python, you might have issues. And so if you're, if you're diversifying and you're branching out and you have a very diverse collection, that could be also a potential, you know, recipe for, for disaster. Well, but at the same time, don't you feel like having a monoculture, just you, you basically have a a virus that loads into an animal, uh, and you literally spread it across your entire monoculture. And if you don't know it's there and you, you know, potentially could infect babies could be infected by it, obviously, you know, this, they don't, uh, cross the envelope, uh, in, in, in NIDO, it seems like, but if you didn't know, you could spread this to these babies, these babies go out mm-hmm. and then they go into other collections where they're not necessarily monocultural and, and they, and they completely decimate those. I mean, I think, you know, that's, yeah, that's that, kind of what, that's what kind I'm of what we're, is, yeah. well, I, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is as a monoculture, you, you, you basically, uh, are, have a gigantic Trojan horse. Um, and, and, you know, potentially, I mean, that's, I mean, that's kind of, yeah. That's kind of the way you could see it. And, and you know, I, I I don't know how much NIDO has been looked at in, you know, uh, across other species and stuff, uh, how, how 
um, how many other types of reptiles are getting infected by NIDO, but it certainly seems to be in the green tree python community. It seems to be in the Morelia community, um, uh, of which are, are, you know, fairly closely related to each other. They at least sure. co-evolved on the same continent. Um, I mean, we, we know they're wild. I mean, they they come from the wild, of course. And, and like we see nidoviruses in, that, that have caused pretty severe disease in uh, shingleback skinks in, mm-hmm. in the wilds in Australia. So, yeah, I mean, there is definitely potential for that emergence of different variants. It, I mean, it, like kind of like it, we're seeing the Delta variant in you know, yeah, COVID right now. Yeah. You know? So there's there's that potential. And, yeah, if you only have that species um, you know, you could have your whole collection kind of go down, uh, if you have the introduction of that. So, I mean, that speaks to, to quarantine, but at the same time, I mean, I think it can work the other way too, where if you bring in trying to, to diversify and not be monoculture, you could bring in things, agents that these, um, that your collection is not used to and doesn't have as kind of a background type thing. And so, yeah, you, you know, that could be an issue as well. So it's hard to say, you know, if that, I, I was just trying to say that that it's a, that's not it's a, a dry, like having yeah, a, no. a monoculture is, is, is bad or, or good in that regard. It, it can be either, or, you know, mm-hmm. it can go mm-hmm. either way. So, yeah. um, I, I think that just says, suggests we need to have better quarantine procedures, uh, I when agree. We're keeping, keeping well, animals, it, especially in large numbers. And it would be nice to have, you know, a little more more viral and bacterial research around, you know, reptiles. And it would be, you know, mm-hmm. it would be nice to if they could actually throw some money at, at you know, we have we have this worldwide trade that we do. And, and so, yeah. so, so, so much is moved around and, you know, um, mixed and matched and swapped and comes in contact with each other that never would come in contact with each other. And we do very, very little to ensure that. Uh, we're not causing major problems uh, by doing that. And, and you know, I, I think that's probably one of those things where and, and you know, the other thing I was just thinking is, is, you know, uh, something like NIDO uh, in situ probably is a little bit different than NIDO in a collection where, you know, it's it's coming in contact with other animals. It may not necessarily be infecting shingleback skinks back then, but maybe it's, maybe it's, uh, evolved or it's mutated and now it can infect shingleback skinks where, you know, something that sits in a collection maybe doesn't, maybe doesn't, uh, get that chance to, uh, mutate, uh, or, or maybe it mutates and there's no shingleback skinks cause there's just not very many of them in, in American. Yeah. I mean, we, so. we've seen that with, with, with a lot of different, uh, microorganisms and ho- I mean a good example is probably the Tasmanian devils mm-hmm. where they had that uh, tumor causing pathogen that was that was just wiping out Tasmanian devils in the wild and they kind of had to take them in bef- until they could you know realize what was going on and how to prevent it and or how to treat or or vaccinate them against that and so um i think they've made a lot of progress on that but i mean that could have been the extinction of that species Mm -hmm. and and, you know i mean that's the way nature rolls sometimes you you get animals that go extinct and maybe some reason we don't know why in some cases and others are a little more obvious i i agree that you know more um the uh more more research is needed. And, and I think some of these like uh, carpet fests and things that are funding um, research into nidoviruses is, is a, a great thing. I mean, it's really great that the community comes mm-hmm. together, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, 
I think going back, my point would be that one needs to be very careful when they establish a, uh, a monoculture because of something potentially like a nidovirus that, you know, may not, uh, you know, may not uh, necessarily originate from the species that they keep, but can infect a species and do a lot of damage before we really figure out yeah. what's going on there. Uh, so, you know, in a monoculture, one must be careful. I mean, and, you know, uh, in, in, in a, uh, worry about you know, the same thing. Yeah, the you absolutely have true. to be very careful. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of this stuff comes right out of the jungle or the, you know, uh, whatever, um, you know, terrain that it's taken from. And, and we have very little understanding about the, the microbial and viral, uh, you know, makeup of those communities and, and uh, what's what's really out there. So, yeah, one has to be very careful, yep. probably yep. both ways. Um, so, yeah. well, and I, and I think, too, that's that's, a, you know, another a good thing about monoculture is most of it's captive bred within the United States. And so you're not exposing to some strange pathogens because they're they're bred and, you know, in a, in a facility in the U S and they're kept, you know, semi-sterile you mm -hmm. know, on, on shavings or on paper or whatever, and they're given clean water. And so, um, and, and a lot of keepers, I think are realizing the importance of a good, um, flow to their work. So you work with babies first, you know, and work with adults on different days, things like that to, to prevent transmission. If you have something, you know, potentially in your, in your, um, collection. Um, if you're working with your babies on one day and then you're, you know, working with the adults on a different day and you're wearing, you know, you're not wearing the same clothes out there or the same, you know, you're, you're, uh, washing your clothes between, <laughs> between working out in, in the baby or the adult areas. And you're kind of keeping them segregated to some extent to, to keep, you know, that's that kind of thing at a minimum. I think that's, that's probably good practice regardless. Mm -hmm. you know? But um, I, I think there's there's that benefit of having things clean and having um, uh, monocultures where you're you're breeding them in house. They're generally you know bred under under pretty good uh, circumstances or or over several generations, and sometimes that weeds out those those issues like pathogens. So I think that can be a benefit for for monoculture. So what do you well. think about uh, monocultures leading to saturated markets or overproduced markets? I think that's probably another area where I would say that uh, monocultures could be potentially problematic. Uh, you definitely see a lot of, I mean, there's, there's no shortage of people breeding ball pythons out there. Uh, and, and, uh, oh, yeah. and, and, and <laughs> I mean, you could go into retics and I think there's some interesting things that happen out of that, that aren't really beneficial to my side, but, um, you know, I, I definitely think that you can look at monocultures and once you get that stuff nailed down, I mean, and then you see this in, in, in industrial farming, once you get that process nailed down, man, whoo, you can, you can really put some numbers out. Right. So, um, you know, and, and, and what is the, you know, what is the positive to that? I mean, I think when you have seven and a half 
over seven and a half billion people in the world and you're an industrial farming um you know outfit with uh, ability to export worldwide feeding that many people uh you, you you've you've got a market right but if you're a, a ball python producer and there's only you know so so many uh thousands and thousands of of reptile people out there your your market's you know a lot a little bit a little bit harder to uh maybe justify a, a you know overproduction so what do you what do you what do you think sure i i can see that but i i do think that there's there's definitely a need for large numbers of these commonly kept commonly available species like ball pythons i i checked uh morph market and not not the uh, condoning or or suggesting that site's good or bad or whatever, but there were fifteen over fifteen thousand ads for ball pythons, right? So everybody says, "Oh, the the ball python market is crashing or saturated or blah blah blah," but I, I don't see any slowdown. Well, I mean, I, so there's there's like endless combinations, yeah, of, I mean, of morphs and, and things to keep it exciting, and people are still very much interested. And there's people making quite a bit of money selling ball pythons. So I I think you know I, I you you could have a point with some things. I mean, when I go to a show, right, I'm excited about my Australian sure. reptiles. I'm excited about you know these little Antaresia, uh, the the little pythons from Australia. And um, for the most part, most people couldn't care less. They want to know what morph, uh, you know, if I have ball pythons at the table, they're all over that. And I sell more ball pythons at these shows than anything else. So, I mean, I, I've, uh, I'm not saying, you know, I don't keep them for for money. So I'm not keeping them to, to sell them. And I actually sent all my ball pythons out on breeding loan. And so, um, just cause they weren't, I wasn't that excited about them as compared with the, um, Antaresia or the, you know, Morelia or whatever the, the different, uh, Australian reptiles. And so, um, but you know, getting some of the babies back from, uh, Brody produced a yep. bunch this year from the animals I sent to him on breeding loan. And they're, um, so I, I just picked those up la uh, last week and, and set those up. So there's, there's some fun morphs in there and, you know, it's kind yeah. of fun again to, to have some ball Python babies on hand. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I think, uh, from that regard, like, I think the market can handle quite a bit of these, those, those beginner species because they're in high demand. Every pet store carries them, you know, everybody. And, and I really think they're kind of that gateway for most people to get into other groups or other species or other things or not. Maybe they're just happy having, you know, a ball Python. Now, I think the, the big kind of challenge is, is that everybody thinks, oh, if I'm going to get ball pythons, I have to be a big breeder and I need to get racks and I need to do this or that. I think with, with the higher availability, I mean, 15,000 ball pythons, I mean, you can find pretty much any look you're interested in and, and probably at the price range you can afford for the most part, unless you just have unlucky tastes and you like the most expensive things. But, um, you know, there's, there's lots of cool morphs out there for not much money. So why not get a nice display and, and, you know, give them plenty of room and get a big cage and you know that kind of thing. And I think, um, that, that, uh, availability and, and, you know, the, the mass appeal of these species makes it kind of that way. So I think if people kind of avoid that thought that, Oh, I need to breed these things. I need to be a breeder. No, you can sure. keep, and there's no shame in that. There's no harm in that. You know? Oh, I so agree. I definitely agree with uh, that. But I think, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think I would say that maybe the, the high number of, 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 
ball pythons you see on the market are indicative of all of the numbers of people who want to breed ball pythons and who are who are doing that in number and uh you know the reason they're kept in racks is because people make more ball pythons than they can get rid of uh so they're ended up holding on to these animals for and you know maybe the animals sell maybe they don't i don't know um but you know i i think some some of some of the the whole why would there so many ads and why so many people keep in racks is is a numbers game is they're forced to hold on to some of these animals whereas maybe the bigger names the guys who are you know our gals who are out there uh with, with some notoriety the go-to people they they move animals a little easier than than others and so you know it's just a it's just a, a time thing where um it, it takes them a lot longer so they got to hold on to more um you know some of the i just i guess i would just just kind of dispute some of the mechanics of 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 why those uh you know why uh there's so many ads out there and and why people say i, that I think I, sat, that, that the market is saturated yeah i think i kind of went off on a tangent a little bit there because it's covering a little too much two, two, yeah. two different things because um one i think we need to separate the the species from the kind of pyramid scheme idea right just because you buy a ball python doesn't mean you have to get a rack system and be a become a ball python breeder and produce hundreds of babies to be to be worth your salt sure. or whatever you can get one or two animals and put them in a eight by four cage and put some branches in there and watch them climb, you know, four feet in the air or whatever you can provide them with and, and enjoy, you know, your two ball pythons. I don't think there's any, anything. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to lead you down. I'm going to lead you down that. a path here. Yeah. Um, so, okay. you know, if, if that's the case, right. And I totally, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you, but uh, a lot of the, one of the leveraging benefits of, of a monoculture is that, uh, you seem to unlock a genome of an animal. And, and once that genome starts to unlock, it, it unlocks very quickly. Uh, and you can kind of see that from wolves into d domesticated dogs and, and the amount of domesticated dogs yeah. that we have uh, by, you know, by species now. And you can look at that with ball pythons, so, uh, you know, from a single species to all of these different mutations. And because once that genome starts to unlock and starts to throw a lot of mutations out there, it just it goes crazy. And so, you know, you can look at retics and berms and and ball pythons a lot of these that were very heavily monocultured animals um and and they have this this large morphological diversity in them now um and so i think to your point um yes you're right people can um you know people can just keep them and not have to rack them and turn and and morph you know morphetize them out the the yin yang but people see this man if i jump into this and i can keep these in a in a, a rack enclosure look at all the things i can do when i get into this monoculture so it almost is like uh it almost leads you down the path and a lot of these species tend to not be very difficult to breed so that, that it doesn't take a high degree of skill there's a large number of mutations with them and i think it leads people into this holy crap i can keep a ton of these i can make 
all these different looks and all this. And I'm not making a judgment about what's right or wrong. I'm just kind of talking about the mechanics of what leads people into why I think they overproduce these as a result of monoculture. Yeah. Um, I, I, I get that. I, but I, I, you know, I think that the, the, uh, benefits definitely are still there regardless of, I mean, because breeders are going to come and go, people are going to get into it for the right or wrong reasons, you know, and, and if it works and they stick around, then, you know, they find their niche and they, they move forward with it. So I don't have any problem with that. Obviously that's what I do. I mean, I'm, (laughs) I breed animals and I produce, you know, quite a few and, 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 uh, sell those, you know, to other people and try to get them interested in the different species that I keep. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I guess just looking at it, you know, I, I see some of these monoculture groups, um, almost like a pyramid scheme, like trying to sell them based on the fact that, oh, you can breed these and make your money back and make more and make lots of money. And, and they kind of, kind of twist it that way and i'm just saying you know that doesn't necessarily have to be part of the equation we can enjoy these animals and in these beginner animals are are great for you know just enjoying and setting up in a you know nice enclosure and just looking and and you know appreciating what you what you have totally totally Um, agree for the record that that might be a a you know a, a total tangent there but um you know that that is what it is uh so I don't know what what else you got uh, for against uh, monoculture. Well, I mean, I I think that you know going back to the beginning, I I think that you know the more we set up into a monoculture, the more we tend to focus on things that um, you know maybe I don't want to say don't need our attention, but there's there's a lot of stuff out there that's that's cool. Uh, it's it's possibly threatened or endangered and um you know maybe maybe just maybe uh, a monoculture uh a monoculturalist uh you know model tends us to move us away from those animals yeah i i can i guess i can see that but i uh, uh, by the flip side too i think a lot of the um, beginner species kind of get you interested and you're like, Oh, I can keep this, you know, this is not beyond my capabilities. And and I mean, any keeper is going to increase their skill as they, as as, if they're successful at all, you know, they're going to keep, you know, do well and then think, okay, well, if I can keep this, maybe I can keep the next level, you know, and they, it gets them interested in other things. And then they also, as they're learning about the species they're keeping, they get into all the, as these other, you know, discover other reptiles and other things that people are keeping. And they, you know, looking for, you know, ball pythons on one site might lead them to discover other groups of, of reptiles. And so, I mean, yeah, everybody's heard of ball pythons and boa constrictors and things like that, but you know, how many have heard of an Owen Pelly Python or, or, you know, some of the more rare things and, you know, not that we can get Owen Pelly Pythons, but you know, or, or a Halmahera Python or something, you know, that, that is acquirable and could, could be, uh, obtained by somebody, but, might be more of a specialized or or more difficult thing to keep and breed i don't think your average um, first time ball python keeper would be very happy getting a a wild caught tracy eye in and and having to deal with that they would i mean was anybody happy about that i mean (laughs) i I, i'm fine with it but uh (laughs) there's a few guys with you know that have some uh 
that can do that. But yeah, for the most part, most people don't want to get involved in a bitey wild caught scrub python. You know, that's I don't, probably not most people. And you know, I don't know. I maybe those <laughs> people you, who like those bitey, flighty uh, snakes, they're they're my kind of people, man. I don't know. I mean, I just yeah, yeah. No, there's nothing wrong with that. Fun, for sure. and, yeah. You know, as long as you don't get <laughs> yeah. nailed by a really but big I, one, uh, it's not that bad. Well, I, I guess I'd ask you, I mean, is that what you started? Well, with? no. Um, I mean, I start, I, <laughs> well, I mean, and, and, and to your point, I, I agree with you, you know, uh, I did, I started with ball pythons and I, I got, you know, like, yeah. I, but I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I didn't know shit about anything. And, 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 you know, that's it. But it helped you, it helped you absolutely. gain your confidence. It helped you think, okay, I can keep this alive and happy and, you know, it's doing well sure. and things like that. And so, you know, I think it, it it's a good way to enter I into agree. the hobby. And that's why we need these monoculture, you know, type species where in, in good numbers on the flip side, I don't necessarily think we need uh tracier produced in the no. same numbers. Right. I mean, if you produced a thousand tracier, you would not be able to easily find a thousand homes no. for those tracy. Maybe, you know, maybe a thousand, but that's probably pushing it. Right. And, yeah, but if you produce was- 15,000 ball pythons, there's a place for those to go. There's people that are going to buy those. And and so um, not to mention the, you know, the export potential and things like that. So if you're producing, you know, thousands of animals, you're probably going to have other markets outside of the United States as well. So, you know, a lot of different things to think about. And I, I do think that, um, you know, as a breeder, uh, keeping, um, if you want to be a professional breeder, you're almost reliant on those monoculture species you you almost have to produce some of those to remain economically yeah. viable i would maintain i mean if you want to make you know uh, money in 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 this in this area now i i do think there is a the place for kind of those small scale breeders where you're gonna make enough to kind of cover your costs and keep things going mm-hmm. like myself like i i keep you know more rare or or uh less commonly kept species and you know i sell them just fine and but but i think if there were 50 other people just like me that kept the exact same species that would be maybe a little too much competition and that's one of the reasons i stopped breeding as many carpet pythons because i was you know they were being imported from europe and there were people that were kind of specializing in them and the the morphs hit and then there were all these people trying to produce all these different morphs and so it got a little convoluted Mm -hmm. a lot a lot of um, different people. And I just wasn't equipped to kind of compete mm-hmm. with those uh, different people that, you know, that were maybe full time and could have more time to sell things. And, and I just you know, thought, well, it's not worth the hassle. I'm just going to slow down my breeding of those species and focus on another group that maybe is less represented yeah. in the hobby. So I do think there's definitely space for that. And, and, you know, and, and, definitely in this hobby is, is uh, room for any, you know, any well, interest, I, you know, you can specialize in, in blind snakes and, and you might find a few people that are interested in blind snakes and, and do and very I think, well. You know, and, and, my, my, to, and, and maybe yeah. you'll agree with me here, but my, my whole thing is, is probably like, if I'm going to produce carpet pythons, uh, I'm going to probably try to do something you know, that, uh, not a lot of people are doing with them, you know, like, like I, I, I think your, your, uh, striped jungle project is a prime example of something that, you know, even with all the hubbub around all the different morphs and all that stuff, if you still had that project going on right now, you'd be selling animals hand over fist mm-hmm. still. 
You know what yeah, I mean? So I think yeah. I think the idea yeah. that 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 um, if you're going to participate in a monocultured, mono um, uh, you know, produce species that you have to find, you know, those projects within that monoculture that, that really make sense, uh, and, and set you out, you know, line, line breeding in monocultures. Definitely. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's easy. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, you know, the morphs kind of take away from that kind of, uh, mentality, but, you know, you still can definitely in, in stuff like tigers and stuff that, that is, you know, very, uh, very highly variable and highly complex in how those looks are created line breed, something that's commonly bred as a monoculture and do really well and still be diverse in what you do. And I would say that you're fairly diverse in what you do, uh, while maintaining some species that, you know, maybe not at your house anymore, ball pythons, you know, um, that, that, that are still considered a monoculture. So, you know, I, I think, and I think that's kind of what I, where I would say I, I'm kind of arguing against the monoculture of, you know, is it easy to have a room that's set up the exact same way and all you have is one species in there? Yes, you can absolutely knock that out of the park because it gets so much harder to, to create uh, a rooms or a room that that can accommodate different species with different needs and you you almost have to get into like microclimating in in one area and maybe trying to find the happy mediums that that makes everybody happy and and how do you do that across a bunch of well you really can't so you have to specialize and you have to kind of um hone in on the things that you do and i think that's a I think that's uh, where, in my mind, I see the most benefit uh, to, to you know, you're you're keeping across species. You're and, and and you know, is there a place for monoculture? Yeah, absolutely, dude, absolutely. Um, and I think you know, in the in the front end of the hobby, where people are coming in the front door of the reptile industry, wanting to get their first reptile, it totally makes sense. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that whole shot. I think you know retics and berms maybe aren't the best monocultures out there right but they they're produced as monocultures so you know i think i think there are some examples of monocultures that we've you know that because we've figured out uh and we have that quote unquote recipe and it's easy for us to run with i don't think that there's you know i think there's bad examples of monoculture and just because you can monoculture something and and produce it in mass does not make it a good thing um but maybe ball sure. I, I do think example, those, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely species that are more like we said, mm -hmm. beginner species retics are not beginner species. I don't know why these are kept in such numbers. And, and I think that's why a lot of these regulations are coming through. You know, if we're not going to police ourselves and, and people aren't going to feel like, okay, what am I contributing here? If I'm breeding all these retics yeah. and sending those out into the world to, I mean, you don't see these giant retics anywhere. So they're, most of them are probably dying at some point along the road, either through neglect or through moving from house to house, you know, that kind of thing. If they, once they get too big to handle. And so, I mean, I, I think people need to ask themselves, am I doing this responsibly? So I, I think those kind of projects oftentimes will weed themselves out. Now, retics persist and, and, you know, Burmese pythons probably were 
not not the worst, but probably not sure. the best either, just because they, they have so many eggs and they get s- such big sizes. Um, but I think the retics are, are the next level yeah. to that, right? So, you know, well, and I, I mean, I'm uh, but but regardless, I think these kind of things kind of weed themselves out, right? You don't have uh, uh, well, I mean, there, there still are quite a few, um, um, produced, yeah. but you don't have the numbers that you do with some of these others. Um, I could check that actually, let's see, we've got, uh, uh, 1300. So about tenfold less reticulated pythons. That's, that's still, still a lot of, quite a bit that's of, a lot, dude. That's a <laughs> that lot. That is, um. that's, that's almost as many as crested yeah. geckos for yeah. sale on the morph that's, market. That's now that's just taking from one yeah. site. So that's, it's hard but to say. But if you take that as a, as a, but. as a, maybe non, uh, a, a, a non-statistically, uh, you know, yeah. uh, binding. Average. Well, and it's probably yeah. weighted towards ball sure, pythons, sure. you know, because it was set up to sell ball pythons. So that's, and it's kind of branched out in other species, but I, you know, I think the, the idea is that we, we definitely see much less, uh, reticulated pythons produced because it's harder to produce those to some extent. Now, when they do produce, they have huge clutches. So that, you know, that, that. Kind so of I, th- I, th- I think it's a nuanced thing and I, I, I'm going to just go back to it. Cause I really feel like, um, the, 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 the monoculture leading to morphs leading to overproduction is, is a, is a, is something that's linked. Um, and, and what's happening to those retakes? Well, you know, they're probably, you know, getting neglected and dying or, or whatever, but that's not a positive. I mean, like, like just because there's not a ton of them out there, even though there's a ton produced, that's a black eye on us as reptile people. Right. Like, you know, like how do we, you know, and, and so again, I'm a big proponent in systems informing um, the way people behave, you know, higher price reptiles lead to better outcomes. I think, you know, not working in monocultures, uh, exclusively now, is there a place for them? Yes, but but the idea that 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 we should produce in monocultures as uh, uh, as an industry probably is not the way to go because there's those things like you know um, monocultures leading to morphs, morphs leading to overproduction, overproduction leading to neglect, things like that. So if we uh, are are careful about how we uh, how and when we use monoculture, uh, I think it probably results in better outcomes. Yeah. Well, and I would refer back to like what I said previously about, um, monocultures is usually things that are not sustainable, like, you know, angry scrub pythons, they're not going to become that's, a monoculture that's, that's right. because they just don't fit that beginner role and, and things. So, you know, eventually those things kind of sort themselves out either through, you know, against our will through legislation or through, you know, responsible practices like people realizing, okay, I don't need to produce, you know, a thousand reticulated pythons because there's not that many people out there that can responsibly yeah. keep those. Maybe I should select a different well, species. And I think, I think with, the factors know. that govern scrub pythons, I mean, anybody who's had a full, a full grown angry barnack uh, in their face realizes what that's about real quick and and there's nothing that will check your uh willingness to jump into something like that than than that you know what i mean Mm -hmm. uh and so so you do see the the number of people who are willing to work with that and you know i'm not and and that doesn't bother me i know how to work with those animals i know how to handle them so that i don't 
I don't have just a pissed off animal trying to kill me all the time. Now, does that, and I mean, mm-hmm. you know, obviously that that's out there and, and you have those, those angry animals that are just going to be that way no matter what. Um, but I, I just, I think that, you know, there are certain species that, that kind of check themselves, you know what I mean? And I think scrub pythons are one of those. You would think mm-hmm. that retics would be one of those. And, and I don't understand why they're not. I, I meant, and that's morphs. Yeah. That's why, because they want to produce. And, and frankly, I mean, there's some pretty ridiculous morphs that have tempted, absolutely. Me to, you know, get some, yeah, they're beautiful. Absolutely. And, and yep. a normal reticulated python yep. is beautiful. And so, you know, and, and the other side of it is a lot of these um, monoculture species are, are typically initially imports yep. that are cheap. And so that allows people to get a group of them together and allows people to think, okay, that's, that's something I want to work with because I worked with a ball Python, you know, when I was a kid, a normal ball Python, and now there's these cool morphs and I know I can keep them. So I'm going to keep more of those. And, and, you know, and that's, that's a fair uh, reason I think for people to, to look into things, but at the same time, it's uh, you know, we, we need to, be responsible just because there's cool mutations in a reticulated python doesn't mean that mm-hmm. we're necessarily suited to keep those well, so and unless I mean, you have you know a, a room size cage to to keep that thing in you might consider a different i, species. I think you you know you, there's stuff that you but you you see some some types of mutations in scrub pythons patternless exantics uh you i mean sure. the, the, they're out there they're just not you know, they're not a lot of these striking mutations. Like we haven't seen a, a you know, an albino barnack or something like that. Um, and, and, you know, my, I guess well, I, I would wonder is if we did see that and, and that could be a viable thing. Yeah. W- would, w- would uh, scrub pythons ever turn into the next, you know, retake? I don't know. I, I'm not so well, sure. Again, you, you have to have, you have to have a species that's going to reproduce well and be, you know, amenable to captive keeping. I just don't think the scrubs are necessarily in that category. Yeah. Look how much difficulty people have producing any number. And that's of scrubs, why, and that's you know? why so I think they're, perfect. I think that plays think into perfect. it. Whereas. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, <laughs> well, for yeah, you, but, but you know, but well, for a monoculture yeah, species, they're, they're, they're definitely exactly. not perfect. You know, they fall exactly. way short. And so that's the thing is, is, is these, these species, the beginner species need to be easy to keep, easy to breed, easy to, you know, maintain, easy to feed, Mm -hmm. those kind of things all play into it. So if you miss one of those factors, you reduce the likelihood they're going to become a monoculture species. Now, some I think overcome like reticulated pythons or, or the uh, giant tortoises, the, the spur thighed tortoises, you know, um, sulcatas, they, they lend themselves to to these kind of monoculture species or or readily available species in herpetoculture because they have such ginormous clutches. So if you do get them to reproduce, you've got 50 babies mm-hmm, to sell, mm-hmm. you know, and so then they become less expensive because, you know, the, the supply and demand kind of uh, shifts. And so then then you've got these very unsuitable pets, right, for beginners, especially um, uh, readily available and in the hands of beginners. I mean, how many adult sulcatas do you see around versus how many are mm-hmm. sold as babies? I, I got one from a, a friend of ours, you know, I had a soft shell. It didn't last long because it was on death's door when I got it, you know, they were just like, Oh, you know, he lost interest. And then it got this spongy shell. I'm like, well, 
you, yeah. you weren't keeping it yeah. correctly, you know, but, and, and I think that that's all too common. So, you know, there, there definitely needs to be some responsibility on the side of the breeders as well as the retailers to sell things that are probably going to do well, not just sell things to mm-hmm. make a buck. And, you know, sure, sulcatas are fantastic species, but not many people are set up for a mini bulldozer. Right. You know, they're not, they're, they're very hard to contain because they're so large and they're so strong. They can pretty much go through just about anything. You know, I had a little, a, a desert tortoise. I mean, he was good size for a desert tortoise when I was a kid that was, uh, somebody local had got it. It was kind of one of those, uh, grandfathered animals that wasn't illegal and and he and it got loose and and my friend found it and gave it to me and so i was able to keep that as a kid and um even that you know what foot and a half tortoise tore through my wall you know tore through the drywall in the in the corner of my closet because he was trying to dig a you know (laughs) dig a burrow there and so my parents were not necessarily happy with me and you know i could only imagine what a sulcata could do it could go through the whole wall if it chose to you know they could probably take out a two by four if they really set their mind to it so um you know we need to be a little selective in the species that we keep for monoculture and not just base it on well we can produce hundred of these very easily. I, and so let's sell them for 50 bucks a piece. Agree. You know, that's sometimes the cheapest animals are, are sometimes the worst things for people to well, start out with. Like ag- iguanas are another or that, that sulcatas yeah, or iguanas. There's, or, there's, there's, yeah. there's, 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 there are countless of examples of, of animals that have been monocultured in, in the reptile industry mm-hmm. that just were not appropriate choices. Uh, and a lot of them yeah. are, 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 are done so because of their clutch size or things that, that, that make yep. them, um, commercially yes, viable but, but not necessarily responsible or yep, yeah yep. and so i i can see the that downside of monoculture when you get into the wrong mm-hmm. species but i do think there's you know definitely a, a very good argument for keeping um ball pythons or boa constrictors or some of these that are that are very um readily available easy to keep don't you know eat you out of house and home you know don't dig holes through your wall and so those are the ones that you know just really lend themselves to a responsible and a suitable and a nice monoculture and i think that's kind of the way things need to move for for this to progress and for us to you know get people interested in in reptiles because if they buy one of the you know like like my friends that bought the sulcata they're not running out to buy another no. tortoise because right. it didn't do well and they didn't have a good experience and the thing just kind of suffered and died, you know? So I, I don't think that's the, you know, those are, those kind of lend themselves to getting people interested in reptiles and getting more people and I think into the people hobby. who get into these mistakenly monocultured reptiles realize very quickly that mm-hmm. they fucked up. Um, and they don't do it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, and so it's, yeah. so it's one of those things that's like, it's, it, it's it's not self-perpetuating in the fact that reptile keepers go back for go keep going back for more and more and more it, it's that these animals still keep stay in the hobby as monocultured uh and and you know uh it, it's it's one of those it it's 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 to my point of why uh a monoculture may not always be the best thing but um 
you know, unarguably, there certainly is a place for monoculture uh, if applied the right way. And I think ball pythons are probably yeah. a good example of that. They they don't, you know, they don't have really, really large clutches. They, you know, they're easy to keep. They're a, a starter species. Like they, you know, um, they have lots of different colors and patterns. And I mean, they're, you know, um, a very, and, and, yeah, and keep and it going. You're, you're no, helping I, my just, argument. No, I, I just I look <laughs> it, it, through the front yeah. door. A monoculture makes sense. Past the front door, man, you you're not making it to the back room with me at that argument. You know well, what I mean? Like, I, I yeah, I mean with you, but I think for the most part, the majority of people, it's it's a great argument, and people stick with you know a lot of these species throughout their entire you know right. And that's and, those, and those are the people like, who go on to yeah. monoculture the shit out of ball pythons, and they're the ones with racks and fucking hundreds of ball pythons and yeah and yeah. they're the ones i'm I mean, talking I, about I that a... never grow out of the monoculture and and move on to more diverse species that are interesting and and uh ecologically significant and that's what i'm talking about is there there's a there's well, a reason I, I would to bring, bring them in the... but just because they stay on it doesn't sure. make it a good thing I'd bring up Ben Morrill. I mean, he's he worked with a lot of the cool species that I did. What's he working with now? All right, ball but- pythons. He went back to ball pythons because that was one of the first he kept, and that's his first, you know, interest into reptiles or whatever. And and he really loved that species. And he keeps them today and breeds just pretty much just ball python. I, I think he has a, a couple other species that his kids maybe got him into. But I mean, he had all the cool Australian stuff that I had and and worked with, you know, other cool species like Angolan pythons. But he went back to ball <laughs> pythons. May, I don't know why, you know, that's just his personal preference or if they're more commercially viable or easier to keep or whatever. But, you know, with his schedule, but, you know, that's what and, he chose. So, and to, I don't I would think, let Ben to speak to his motivations around that. Sure, and, and, sure. But he's also created yeah. a, a genetics company that uh, he used yeah. ball pythons to figure out uh, how to how to sex mm-hmm. animals based on their skin shed. So he's doing things with his ball pythons that really have very little to do with keeping the monoculture. I, I mean, I, I, I hear well, your point. I hear I your point. I mean, I hear your point. Breeds for the more, you know, and I don't, he's not, how he's many, not how many, basing his genetics company off ball. Well, I, I get that but, because he's not looking at, but isn't that where he like started? Morph, isn't that where he started though, is, is trying to get his, it might've got his interest in it, but I don't think it's necessarily but one of the first, Just, I, I think he actually, one of his first tests was in Colubrid. Okay. So he, uh, yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I think that's a great example of how the monoculture can work and, and foster, you know, more of the same. And, and I mean, he's producing some really cool mutations and things like that. And, and he's happy with it. You know, he, I, I think I was the one that kind of dragged him into the Australian stuff and some of the, you know, the non monoculture stuff. And, and I it just wasn't his cup of tea, like the ball pythons were. So he's back where, where, where his true interests and love lies. And that's, that's fine. I mean, I, I welcome it, you know, there, there's a good diversity and, and, you know, you can keep what you want. And if you like the, the monoculture species, I mean, that's almost like a benefit, I think, because there's so many more different avenues within that group, you know, that you can keep. And, uh, so I don't know, lends itself to, to other, the other benefits if you're keeping one of those monoculture species and, uh, makes it maybe easier to move the offspring, um, different, different, there's definitely a lot of benefits to keeping those monoculture species. Well, for the keeper. Yeah. 
I, I get that. I get that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, not, not everybody, you know, likes the, the big bitey snakes. Oh, like is that do. where we're taking it? <laughs> so, I see. All right. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, but you know, I don't, sh- I don't fault you for it. You know, I think that's a, and, and I'm the same way. Like I said, I like these little weird pythons from Australia that don't seem to be that exciting. A lot of people, <laughs> they, they're often called dirt snakes and, but I, I, I think find them very fascinating, very cool. One of my favorite species to keep, but, um, you know, not a lot of people share that attitude. So I, that, you know, for me, it's an avenue to educate and to show how cool these things are. And, but, you know, when I first learned about them, I was completely fascinated, you know, a small Python that lives out in the middle of the desert of Australia. What a cool thing, you know, what a cool, what a cool radiation and evolution of, of, you know, these, these, pythons that that i really enjoy sure. and like and i like them well and, and you know ben can have his ben can have his ball pythons and that's cool man and i just mm-hmm. i guess my my point would be that i hope that you know well while ball pythons maybe be the the thing that is the first you know experience for a lot of us my myself um you know the 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 industry probably would look very different is it if everybody was Ben Morrill and went on to just keep ball pythons and that's it. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. There's not, but you know, this reptile uh, hobby is so much deeper than ball pythons. And, and, and that is, isn't that like the tagline of Justin Julinder? There's so much more out there than, than just keeping, you know, snakes in a cage kind of thing. And I I think that goes. And that's why I took this, this point of this perspective is because yeah, that is my interest in my tagline. So I want, wanted to widen my horizons a little bit and think All about right, well, the I'm just side. keeping I, you I honest. really, you know, looking for these, these benefits of, of the monoculture species. And I think they're, you know, they they speak for themselves, right? Possibly. If they didn't, there wouldn't be all these ball pythons produced. If they didn't, there wouldn't be all these crested geckos produced or leopard geckos or whatever, whatever, you know, sure. you want to choose. And, and I think too, like when people stop breeding some of these, um, kind of keystone species like you know there was just really um so many people working with king snakes and some of the you know the uh, colubrids and then all of a sudden they kind of disappeared right you didn't see them at shows and and that kind of thing and then um i think people I didn't even like, notice well, where are all these and then they all of a sudden they all of a sudden they became very popular and and now they're commanding very high prices and people are jumping into them again and, and scrambling to get, you know, collections of colubrids. And, you know, I, I, I don't think their popularity, you know, their, their popularity kind of waned a little bit, I think for most people, because there were so many available. And and I think we've lost some of the things that we had that were available because of that attitude of chasing the next big thing. But, um, but there's, but there is that demand still. And I think if you're, if you're a smart, you know, reptile keeper, you keep what you like. And then if they become popular, that's great. If not, then, you know, hold off on the breeding and enjoy them. But I mean, I think, I think almost what you said there was that if, if, uh, if you don't have that next big thing in monoculture, it just falls apart and nobody, it just, it just trails off. And then it comes back because if you're a breeder. Okay. Uh, I mean, yeah. 
if you're if you're trying to be a commercial breeder and you're trying to make a livelihood based on breeding reptiles, you have to consider what's popular and what people are interested Absolutely. in. Absolutely. But I think a lot of times people consider themselves that that level of breeder when they're really not and they really don't need to be chasing those things and they could do just as well as a small batch breeder focusing on things that they really enjoy and they really like rather than trying to chase what's popular. But I think for the most part for the for the large scale commercial breeders they have to definitely well, and I th- but and, I think but I think in, if we're being honest the those large scale breeders are what's setting the mark and what what they're producing and what's selling is what other people see when they make decisions around starting their small time reptile hobby business and what do I need to to keep and sell and 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 quite honestly if you are coming in and you've made a thing out of it and you want to produce reptiles but you you don't quite know so you're going to take those cues until you figure out what the fuck you're doing in the reptile hobby what you like what's you know where your place is and sure. and and then that's when you see sure. that realignment and so you know that and that's fine i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that it's that's kind of how it is but you know uh, from from again, to be consistent with my point is there's a place for monoculture and it's right through the front door, but it it shouldn't persist out out, all the way out the back door. You know what I mean? I I think that, uh, well, I mean, if you enjoy that and you like it, why, why chase stuff you don't necessarily enjoy as much. If you're a ball Python guy, stay with ball Python. And that's, that's that's a fine way to go. But I just think that, I just think that, uh, you know, if, if that's the case, then maybe don't be, you know, either go be a commercial breeder of ball pythons and do it in, in a, a monoculture and, and in a way and be one of those people or just keep a couple of ball python projects because you love it and Ben moral it to, to the end. And, and, you know, that's <laughs> fine. But, you know, just the idea of keeping again, I'm going to go back to the idea that you know, monocultures lead to morphs, morphs lead to chasing that next thing and, and you get caught up, man. And I think that, you know, it, it's, it, look, it's all an application. It's all how you do it. There's nothing wrong with a monoculture, but if, if you create uh, a monolith of monoculture, that's probably not healthy. I mean, you can see monoculture uh, in a lot of different natural aspects and it's highly productive but it can also have a lot of problems and i just i think this is you know you're 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 basically on the side of it's highly productive and it makes a lot of sense and i'm saying yeah but it has a lot of problems so i mean i just think that you know when you talk about monoculture whether you're talking about uh the reptile industry and ball pythons or whether you're talking about farming or land use or any other type of environmental thing there there's definitely downsides to it and and to kind of say like oh it's it's all good it it works towards the benefit of well maybe not yeah but 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 wheat wheat and corn aren't going anywhere right they're a monoculture for a reason and so if you if you try to say well we need to get rid of wheat or we need to you know i i I think that's kind well, of the same I, I don't thing think as ball I, pythons, I think I don't right? think I said ball pythons that. aren't going anywhere. They're going to be a staple, and so there is a reason there's monoculture. It's because it's it's important to humankind. I guess you know what I mean. And, like, and there's and there's have, nothing there, wrong there's with a reason. There's there, there's yeah. nothing wrong and, and with and not, wheat. Not, like, not to say like. Wrong. 
There's there's nothing wrong with wheat. Like there's nothing long wrong with ball pythons. Okay, it's not about the product. It's about what happens out of that product, right? So wheat is necessary. It gets exported all over the world and used in 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 in, you know all over the place. But but it's it's the chemicals that we need to use and the and the synthetic fertilizers and, and the monocultured way that we industrial industrially farm rather than a mixed use organic approach to revitalize soils, cut down on the types of pests, use use companion planting rather than than the monoculture so that you can put plants that actually resist some of the pests uh, that are endemic to wheat or, or le- so it's 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 having a sophisticated way that works with the environment in order to do something. It has zero and 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 because we don't do that, we take the technologically superior quote, 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 in air quotes, uh, you know, way of doing things, we suffer all these issues like like pesticide uh, contamination and depleted soils from from synthetic fertilizers. So that's that's my point. It's not about the product. It's about the problems that come out of it. Well, there's, there's no perfect system. So you're going to have to work out kinks, right? You're going to have to say, okay, do we really want scaleless ball pythons or, or do we really want, you know, or, or do we use these pesticides on our wheat? Wheat's not going anywhere. Ball pythons aren't going anywhere. They're, they're good. And they're a staple of the hobby. Um, just like wheat is a staple of, of the food industry. Right. And so we're going to try to fix the issues in certain ways. I, I read a great book speaking of wheat and, and wheat production. There was a great book on, uh, uh, scientists that went and, you know, crossbred all these different types of wheat and to make a stronger, more disease resistant type. And I, you know, I think similar things need to be applied to the reptile industry. That's why I'm saying, okay, just because you like ball pythons doesn't mean you have to be a ball python breeder. You can keep and enjoy ball pythons as pets and there's nothing wrong with that. I think we have a stigma in this hobby that if you don't breed the animals you keep, there's something wrong with you or you're, you're not, you know, capitalizing on your investment or whatever you, they say or whatever. So I think there's issues like that that need to be worked out. Of well, the I, I kind of disagree and, with and you. Just have people understand those things, you know, and, but, but I don't think the monoculture is what's bad. I think maybe some of the aspects of the monoculture can be somewhat damaging, like breeding retics. I mean, we, I think we don't need to mass produce retics, uh, but mass production of ball pythons, I think is very, very fine and favorable for our industry. So that's, you know, that's kind of what I'd uh, sum up with, but you know, these things are, are important and useful, but we need to make sure we do it in a, in a responsible manner. Yeah. I, I mean, no, no doubt. Uh, application is everything. Um, clear, clearly we can, we can use monoculture to leverage to the, to the T's, uh, anything that we want. That's, that's, that's been the power of the technology that we've employed, whether that's keeping reptiles or whether that's industrial agricultural farming. Um, I, I think everything that we talk about and the problems that we have are about use and application, right? Um, There's nothing wrong with the technology, just like there's nothing wrong with the animal. Uh, It is how we employ Mm -hmm. uh, that technology or that animal in the market and, and, and the decisions that get made around it. Right. So I, and, and, you know, my concern is, and, and just, just to say, like, I don't think that, that, 
the industry is running around telling people that they need to go and be breeders and recoup their, I think people wanting to, to reproduce animals. And, and when they get into stuff like morphs and they, they start like in their head, just like, Oh my gosh, I could do that. And people get into their head about it. And they're like, this is so cool. I mean, you, you have to admit that every time you hatch out a clutch, you're like, yes, this is the, this is the greatest thing ever. And that's a, that's not, that's an, that's a, that's a common feeling. It's not a Justin Jewlander or or a Chuck Poland Mm -hmm. thing. That is a reptile keeper thing. And I think when people experience that, that it's like the drug that hooks them on, you know? So I don't, I don't necessarily think that there's, you know, I, I think you're right in what you're saying that not everybody needs to go out there and reproduce their animals and not everyone has to be a breeder, but you know, it's hard as a breeder to turn around and be like, you shouldn't be breeding those. We need responsibility. <laughs> well, I didn't say right? you shouldn't I'm just saying, you know what I that mean? I'm just saying really have to be part of the equation. It's like hoop dreams. I mean, there's a lot of people that can play basketball very well, but how many are going to make it to the NBA? And if everybody's planning on being right. an NBA player, you know, there's going to be a lot of discipline disappointed people. And I think, you know, sure. yeah, you can breed a clutch or two and, and enjoy that and hatch out animals. That's, you know, one of the best parts of, of being in this. And I think a lot of people get over their heads and then they realize, oh, I got into this too fast. And then they get out and they disappear. And I think, you know, again, totally agree. kind of buying into that idea that I need to be a professional breeder or else I shouldn't be doing this is kind of one of the faults uh mis- you know one of the misconceptions a lot of people have in this industry so yeah yeah i agree i agree all right well cool man <laughs> good good discussion i liked yeah. it i liked it yeah let us know if there's anything we missed or any other aspects that you guys can think of and you know uh, put some thought into it and see what you think uh about this whole to- topic yourself so that's part of the fun of this is getting getting people involved and and discussing these as well but well, we, yeah, we've gone a little long tonight, <laughs> so yeah, it's all hopefully, right. uh, you enjoyed it and you got something out of it and that's the goal here. So see both sides of the coin. Anything else? I have nothing else. Are we talking about a next show or are um, we, I, yeah, I mean, going to keep people in suspense. Yeah. Let's keep them in suspense. We're lining up. Some all right. Stuff. Sounds good. All right. All right. All right. Cool. Thanks, man. All right. Good, good discussion. Yep, thank you. We'll, uh, we'll see you, everybody. Soon. All right. Yep. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. Fight Club.